Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization founded and led by Sarab Sadat Lajavardi called Musicians for Musicians. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags on social media, hashtag unity in the music community, and hashtag making music as a profession. And we encourage you to visit musiciansformusicians.org and to join our organization. If you'd like to become a supporter, you may do so by visiting our website. Again, that's musiciansformusicians.org. Our guest today is Banning Air. Banning is a writer, guitarist, and producer, and the senior editor and producer of the public radio program Afropop Worldwide. He has traveled and done music research in over 20 African countries, as well as in the Caribbean, South America, and Europe. His latest initiative is the launch of Lion Song Records, an independent label dedicated to uplifting, overlooked, mostly acoustic music from the African universe. In June 2021, he released Babakar Diabate's Mande Guitar, a showcase recording of fingerstyle Malian guitar. He is the author of Lion Songs, Thomas Mapfumo and the Music That Made Zimbabwe. In Griot Time, an American guitarist in Mali, playing with fire, fear and self-censorship in Zimbabwe, fear and self-censorship in Zimbabwean music, and Guitar Atlas Africa, and the co-author of Afropop, an illustrated guide to contemporary African music. Air is a contributor to National Public Radio's All Things Considered, and his writing has been published in Billboard, Guitar Player, Salon, The Boston Phoenix, College Music Journal, Option, The Beat, Folk Roots, Global Rhythm, and other publications. He also has a background in technology and worked for 10 years as a software technical writer. He is also on the Advisory Committee for Musicians for Musicians. Before we begin, let's listen to a track by Banning's new ensemble Voyagers called Today is a New Day.
thank you for joining us here at MFM Speaks Out. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've uh, listened to and uh, and I've written about uh, your presentations with MFM, such as uh, your recent Music is Essential uh, webinar. And, uh, I got to say that your uh, your knowledge of African music is profound, to say the least. Uh, my compliments. And uh, you know a lot better than most people do that uh, African music is not uh, remotely homogenous, either culturally or stylistically. How do you draw your influences from these different traditions when you uh, compose and improvise your original music? Okay, well, it's not very uh, deliberate or conscious most of the time. I, I think that everything that I do when it comes to composing it, it, when I'm composing for myself, sometimes I'm given a particular assignment and then that that directs me in certain ways. But mm -hmm. in general, I think it, a lot of it really goes back to even before African music when I was just sort of a finger style folk blues and rock guitarist. You know, there was a lot of I kind of taught myself how to finger finger pick in the beginning, hmm. you know, when I was really young. And and then I had classical training that gave me a lot actually in terms of articulation and, and certain techniques mm -hmm. um, and then as I, I mentioned in the webinar in the 90s when I went to live in Mali I, I, I learned this 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 technique of using the finger the forefinger like a, like a flat pick and that gave me sort of another voice mm. but but you know, you know, a way of making a melody sort of pop out of an accompaniment. And so all of those things just kind of meshed together. But I, I think that the, I, a, a lot of the African stuff has sort of seeped into to my just instinctual way of playing. Um, and, you know, certain things more than others. I mean, most of the stuff that I that I compose is, is fingerstyle acoustic stuff. Mm. And um, and then a lot of times I'll, I'll create an accompaniment, record it or put it in a loop pedal and then compose a melody to go with it. Sometimes if I start to feel like if I, I compose something, and I start to feel like, oh, this really feels kind of like Cape Verdean music or something. It's, it's not coming usually out of a deliberate effort. Occasionally, sometimes I'll think, God, I'd really like to play something that's got, you know, the feeling of um, of you know Zulu guitar music, and and mm. then and then I'll hunt around till I find something that kind of feels that way, but I mostly I don't try to compose in a particular style. I I, I, I go with instinct. I just pick up my guitar and and start playing. And a lot of times it'll happen sort of late at night, and I I record things on my phone. Mm -hmm. And and then I'll go back and listen. I think, oh, this one's good. I should develop this one. So then I'll start to turn it into something, and it'll eventually crystallize in, into something. But but since I have yet to make a real, you know, definitive recording of this material, it's always changing. It, things haven't really reached most things haven't really reached final forms because I feel like if I recorded them and 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 they were you know, sort of out there on, a, on an album of some sort that maybe I would stick to the, the plan more. But, uh, 
but yeah, for me, it's really, it's, it's, it's pretty much an intuitive process, but because I've spent so much time listening to all these kinds of music and in some cases playing them, it, it, it just, it just kind of seeps together. But I do feel like there's an element of it that actually predates all the African stuff. It's just something about the kind of fingerstyle guitar that I was initially drawn to when I was in my sort of folk blues years, you know? Yeah. We never uh, forget where we came from. I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that's just the natural process of uh, creativity. We uh, take everything from everywhere and uh, just funnels into uh, into one thing and then it and yes, something absolutely. new. Yeah. Something new grows out of it that an aggregate of uh, everything that we uh, absorbed in our past. You've played with a lot of the a lot of great uh, African musicians of our time, like um, uh, Thomas Mapfumo, Abdullah Diabate, and Taj Mahal. The list just goes on and on and on. Uh, and <laughs> there's a story behind every one of them. <laughs> oh yeah, I could have. Yeah, we could we could be here for a long time uh, listening to stories. And you are obviously not African. When you uh, found yourself. Uh, uh, with these with these musicians and uh and and in this in this social and cultural setting um how were you and your uh, music received by the musicians and the audiences yeah it, it 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 varies um the general thing that i would say is that it generally goes over a lot better in africa than it does outside of africa really because yeah, um, because the thing is that when I've when I've played in Africa, for the most part, I haven't played my own music. I've just played with 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 and tried very much to sort of fit into the style. Because for me, it was all a learning experience. I was trying to really learn how how does this particular style work, you know? And mm -hmm. and I was I was not trying to sort of um sort of impose my own creativity most of the time some some of the styles called for soloing and 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 that but but a lot of the time i was really just trying to do it the way it should be done the way the tradition calls for and that is generally perceived as as a compliment by hmm. african musicians and audiences you know that you're not coming in trying to turn their music into rock and roll or show off or something like that but that you're actually showing you know that it goes the other way you guys are the ones who are teaching me you know yeah and, that you're respecting that that, their traditions exactly and i think that that well particularly in zimbabwe i would say that was very much appreciated because um because of the whole history of of uh of really t difficult race relationships there and 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 the the rhodesian regime which was very much intent on suppressing local culture and and and, and local the, the the mere act of playing local music um particularly when it was in in a in on electric instruments and that was per, was it se was seen itself as a kind of a rebellious act mm. you know and so so to have a foreigner come in and actually be you know, learning mm -hmm. and playing that style was at first, you know, confusing, but ultimately winning. And, uh, mm. and I, I think I, I had a lot of friends that way. Um, in, in Mali and in West Africa, a lot more 
Westerners do come there to learn music. Not so much when I first went there in the 90s, but, but by now a lot have done that. So it's a bit more familiar, the idea of, of, of a Westerner coming in and, and, and learning the music. Hmm. Um, so, you know, occasionally, very occasionally, I would run into the sort of attitude of, uh, you know, don't teach that white guy how to play this. He'll just go home and make money with it, you know, and where will you I be? Suppose you know? I suppose mean, that's inevitable. But really surprisingly rare, you know, I mean, not, hmm. not, not typical, but I, occasionally I've run into that. And, you know, <laughs> not so much from, I mean, at the time I remember mostly, it wasn't even the musician who was teaching me. It was his friend sitting next to him saying this to him in their language and the only reason i know what he was saying is because another friend of mine who was there told me later this guy was just telling him to not to teach you you know <laughs> and uh you know but 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 that's pretty rare i think in the u.s if, mm -hmm. if if a band comes you know that i have a relationship with and i, and I have the opportunity to sit in with them like with mafumo i think there's a there's a there's a there's a different kind of mentality that, that kicks in when Americans are looking at an African band that they're specifically going to see because they want to be immersed in, you know, this other world. Right. And then they see Americans getting up and playing with that band. It, it can be off-putting to them, you know, and, and, mm. uh, and you know, I, I have friends who 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 have or have had similar experiences to me who really get hot about that and feel like it's racist and all that. Even an Embiro player that I worked with a lot, Chartwell Dutero, you know, he lived in England for a long time and he had these you know multiracial bands and sometimes festivals wouldn't book them because they weren't all Africans and that just made him furious. He just mm. hated that. You know, he thought it was just the you know the epitome of racism. I tend to have a more forgiving attitude towards that, not so much on the booking side, but just I understand where people are coming from that way, you know, and that in a way you have to in both those situations, but in kind of different ways, if you're going to get up there and play with an African band, you kind of have to um, earn it by by playing well, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it creates a certain pressure on you. You know, you the worst thing in the world is to get up there and be in any way fumbling and not sure. Of oh, what yeah. You're doing. You know, that's that's a nightmare. And I have had that experience. I'm sorry. Haven't we all? You know, whiplash <laughs> moments. We've yeah, all had sure. it. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think that uh, during one of your recent uh, MFM events, you said something to the effect of that, that all music is fusion music oh yeah right well that that kind of goes to the whole idea of um of pure traditions you know um and i think what i was getting at with that is that is that all music is the product of things that have come before you know mm -hmm. i mean um i mean if you take an example like kora music in in right. in, in in mali or west africa um that's a tradition where going back to pre-colonial times, griot musicians really just, that was the only thing they had to do. They didn't have to do other jobs because that was a job that actually paid and, mm -hmm. and took care of them. That was their role in society. And so what happened is you have people who generation after generation are basically spending their whole lives dealing with music. And, um, and so what happens is, and because in that music, 
the voice and the narrative is the most important thing and it can goes on and on and on the musicians spend a lot of time in effect playing for each other and so they become quite competitive and what happens is that over time the music keeps changing things keep getting introduced it gets more and more complicated that's why when you listen to a really good core player it's kind of dazzling you think good god listen how elaborate and complex this music is and that's because it's had these generations after generation of the young ones trying to outdo the elders and all that and so mm -hmm. it, it's and through that the music evolves and influences come in and now that you know everybody's listening to everything you have people plugging their cores into fuzz boxes and all this kind of thing you know and um but but in a way that stuff was always happening you know there was there, you know the music came didn't just wasn't just born there out of nothing you know it's it's always the product of a social situation and um and so what while you can't really say that that means that there's no way you can dilute or 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 sort of pervert a tradition you you can you know but but it, on the other hand it's not a pure un, unmoving thing you know so yeah the, and the, every, the everything is always in between yeah, yeah everything is always evolving it's always yes. growing i mean uh, in fact music is supposed to be alive and changing you know we don't we don't make music just so that we could like embalm it and put it into a museum although exactly people do that and, and but you do run into that attitude people thinking that you know anything you do with that, that changes the music oh my god you're 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 just you're destroying this pure tradition and that mm -hmm. pure is a word that doesn't really exist in in my vocabulary it doesn't exist so anywhere getting at. <laughs> yeah it doesn't exist anywhere could you imagine a scientist saying something like that yeah right exactly. <laughs> yeah that'll be the day there is a noticeable pattern wherein uh, music that came to the West or to the, this maybe perhaps specifically to the United States from Africa. Yes. Uh, had developed into something new, like, mm. like, uh, like blues or, or R and B funk jazz. Sure. sure. And then it returned to Africa to be embraced as something new and the, and used as a, a springboard to develop something new and this emergence. And it, there's also the factor of uh, the emergence of new technologies. You, you mentioned fuzz boxes or, uh, or wah pedals or uh, phase shifters. I've, I've, you know, back, you know, a hundred years ago, the African musicians didn't have phase shifters or synthesizers or anything as those are always factors that are, uh, that are, that are going to be uh, happening. That and, uh, Taking a wild and yet educated guess, what do you see as a po as possible developments in the future of African music? Okay, well, first of all, that <laughs> idea of things going back and forth is—I mean, that's what—that's fantastic. It's what Afropop has kind of all been all about. We in the early days we used to do, we had shows called Afropop Afropop Ping Pong that was about that exact idea mm. of you know. Um, this back and forth and you know you have some really strong examples of uh of that in what well in west africa you could point to um the whole sahel alifarkatore african blues phenomenon being in part a result of the fact that the early radio programmers in that part of africa could hear 
that there was something kind of bluesy in the tonality of the local music they were hearing. So they programmed a lot of blues music, like like John Lee Hooker is known to every Maui. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and then, so then when the local musicians hear the John Lee Hooker and they hear how it is on the guitar and they hear certain distortion effects or whatever, and everything that flows out of that, they then reappropriate that. And yeah, they're gonna with, be. I want that. <laughs> and then you and then you end up having you know american rock musicians hearing that and thinking whoa those are some really cool riffs i want to you know so it's and then you listen to a guitarist like uh via farcatore ali's mm -hmm. son who has just absorbed all of that and he's just he's just an, an absolute um i don't know what to, what to call it i mean it's just it's all there you know this, yeah. and he can go in so many different directions and you can think okay now he sounds like now he sounds like his dad and it seems really traditional and now he sounds like alvin lee you know <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> and you know he's 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 an example of someone who's really like absorbed that whole stretch and then you look at a parallel you could you could tell a similar story about funk music in nigeria mm. and afro beats mm. afro yeah. beat music and all of that yeah, and uh and, and, and high life or something yeah yeah particularly the funky stuff the afrobeat and fela and and all fela. those funky bands mm -hmm. there were a lot of funky bands in the 70s that were basically picking up on psychedelic rock and funk music and re-africanizing it right but they do it initially because they hear something of themselves in it it's not like they're just taking something that's totally foreign you know they're there's something that they inherently relate to from mm. the beginning and you have another similar story in the Congo when they heard Afro-Cuban music, which has all, which is a lot of, you know, a lot of Congo people went to Cuba and, and were very important in the whole development of the Afro-Cuban sound. So when they start to hear son, they hear Bantu rhythms, they hear a lot of things that seem familiar to them. So then they reappropriate that. And mm -hmm. in terms of creating new stuff, when that music evolved to the point where it was being played on electric guitars, they were now bringing in traditional African and Congolese ideas of orchestration and how you put parts together, but within the context of this very kind of Cuban rhythm mm. and arrangement, and, and they're coming up with something new. And one of the things that they hit upon, talking about technology, was the idea that the lead guitar should play with a very particular digital delay sound, you know, it, it, uh, a short, you know, dunk, dunk, that kind of a, a delay, which gives which gives that part this airiness that floats mm. over everything, and that started in probably the '60s or seven late '60s '70s, and now it's totally. I mean, it it became part of the tradition. Everybody, mm. every lead guitarist has to use that sound because that's the sound of Congolese lead guitar, and mm. it is tradition. So that's another example of of things changing. Um, when I first started going to Africa in the 80s, um, a lot of new technology was just arriving. Mm -hmm. And there weren't that many great recording studios. And what happened often was that the hardest thing to record and the thing that required the most microphones and, and, and technology and tracks was drums. So, so what they would do is they started using drum machines because it was so much easier you just plug in this machine and you can program it to play the part you want and hmm. and, and and i was among wow. a chorus of people who thought that this was a really bad idea 
because yeah. because it kind of flattened out the rhythm. You know, it, it 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 took something that was really rich and breathing and turned it into something very static. But to some people, that that very staticness became an attractive aesthetic, and so mm. there was a lot of back and forth about this. But what happened since then is that the technology has improved producers have gotten much more savvy and now you hear you hear the i mean in the, in the beginning there were there were kind of pr primordial african hip-hop sounds that grew out of that but it has now matured into this sound that's coming out of nigeria now which gets called afro beats with an s very confusingly mm. um <laughs> and that is I mean, it's some of the most popular music in the world right now. I mean, Burna Boy just sold out Madison Square Garden two weeks ago, you know, mm, mm, and mm. Um, and and so there's an evolution. There's a process of imitation that is followed by a period of experimentation. And in some cases, you get a kind of a crystallization of a new genre. I mean, the example of the delayed guitar in in in, in Congo is one and this Afrobeats thing is another there's lots of r&b influence in it there's lots of dance hall influence in it there's hip-hop there's rapping and singing there's but there are also african rhythms i mean you know again it becomes this argument i mean i don't find the music as compelling as the stuff that i was listening to from the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. but i don't invalidate it as being you know a perversion of tradition or anything like that. It's just not as much to my tastes. However, I can't argue with its success. It's just phenomenal. I mean, those artists are mm. really, really blowing up, you know? Well, you can't argue with success. No, and, you really uh, can't. And you also mentioned uh, the idea of a primordial African music. And uh, it uh, suggests that uh, there was something in the beginning that a qual a musical quality that is absolutely unique to African music that could not have developed anywhere else. You know, I remember somebody saying something to the effect of, uh, that, uh, that the might, might even have been you that said that, but, uh, in the development of, uh, of music throughout the world, there's African music. And then that there's, uh, everything else yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's... people say that not just about music but about all of civilization you know mm -hmm. um, what's tricky about that i mean the, first of all the thing about re about recognizing yourself in it um or finding a, a, a sense of familiarity that's mysterious i mean mm -hmm. sometimes that just is something completely unexplainable you know i mean it has no there's no rhyme or reason to it like why would why would you know we from the east coast of the u.s hear this this ancient music from morocco and think that had anything to do with us well you know if you go back to plate tectonics you know morocco used to be part of connecticut but anyway that's another story <laughs> yeah I, I know <laughs> but uh, but, uh i mean you know but 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 the sense of time but then sometimes there is some sense to it like i mean the fact that we have so much back and forth between West African music and the United States is because a lot of the Africans who came here were from that part of Africa. And so, so to me, when I think of something like the funk story or the blues story in Northern mm -hmm. Mali, it's like, it's like 
twins separated at birth and reuniting or shared DNA. I mean, there's all these metaphors you can use, but there's at least some sort of logic to it. Yeah. But what makes it hard is the time factor. I mean, you think of it, we've only had recorded music for what, you know, 100, 120 years, years, yeah, 120, 120. I mean, that's just nothing. You know, mm -hmm. when you think about even just thinking about the the, um, the the Atlantic slave trade, 400 years, you know, and we only have like a quarter of it that we really know what what things sounded like on either side. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but you, and look at how much change has happened in that time. So when you think, what was it like 200 years before that? I mean, really, you can only guess, you know, and then you start to think about even longer time frames, you know, when you're thinking about how music and and musical ideas floated out of Africa and it's fascinating but it's ultimately very speculative you know you can try I mean you know there are people who try to put together musical traits linguistic stuff DNA evidence to try to you know understand these deeper narratives which is a fascinating and worthwhile pursuit but but ultimately, you know, the time frames that we're dealing with are so large that <laughs> there's only so far you're ever going to get with, with those tools, you know? Yeah, yeah. Let's take a break. This is a piece by the Super Rail Band called Silanide. Por 
started doing Afropop worldwide on NPR in in 1988 and uh, yeah. you're still do, you're still doing the show and it's been quite successful. Uh, what's your what's your involvement with the show these days? Um, too much. <laughs> really? I oh. say that well I say that only because we're at a point now where we really want to bring in new talent, you know. And 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 essentially um, pass the torch on the actual production of the program so that we can focus on other bigger projects involving the archive and education mm -hmm. initiative, a documentary project. There's a lot of things waiting in the wings, you know? Um, but right now I'm, I'm the, the senior producer. So I probably produce more shows than anyone else. And I'm also very much involved with recruiting new producers. We do um, at the end of each se our, our season, because our grant here with the NEA and, and with, uh, with PRX is now our distributor. We were NPR, then we were PRI, and now it's PRX. This sort of, you know, behind the scenes stuff. But, but the year ends at the end of June. So we, we always, that's, our, that's when we have to kind of wrap up those seasons and, and start the new one. Um, but at the end of each season, we always put, pull together a group of 10 shorter podcasts, which we call Afropop close-ups. So they're like... They don't go on the air. It's on in the podcast feed. They're twenty-minute stories narrated by the producers, and it's very much a. On one hand, it's a training ground for for new producers. So, so I do a lot of outreach and trying to find new producers, particularly more diverse producers, younger from the continent. This time we have a Nigerian woman and an African American woman and. 
in the Bay Area and a few other new voices coming in, um, telling stories. Uh, and, and, and I mentor them in the production techniques, the stuff you have to do to actually pull it together. But boy, boy, so many people now know how to make podcasts. And they, instead of just delivering a script and a bunch of audio, they send you a, you know, a Pro Tools session, um, mm. which is really nice. You know, I mean, the, 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 the skills of production are going down and down and down the chain so that more and more producers can put together basically um, – you know, a product that just needs to be tweaked. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, 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 I, my goal is to have a lot more new producers in our next season so that I'm producing less shows mm-hmm. and also that we're getting younger voices in there. Cause you see, we've, you know, as you say, we've been doing this for, this will be our 35th year and it's, uh, you know, popular music is something that's ultimately really aimed at youth, you know, Mm-hmm. the new popular music. So I'm, I'm really happy with having the sort of role of, of preserving the memory of the great artists who've passed that we, you know, were privileged to know and work with and have younger people be taking the foreground to tell the stories of what's happening now, because that's the way ahead for Afropop. And then, and then it can continue to have relevance and, and, um, and, and to draw audience as, as, you know, the great cycle of life goes on. I, mm-hmm. I, Sean Barlow and I really want this thing to survive us, you know, but I, but I have a lot of other projects in the wings, including just playing music, which I never get enough time to do yeah. um, because it's pretty demanding. We're a very small shop, you know, and, and it's, it's, uh, you know, you have to wear a lot of hats. And um, so I'm hoping that a new team can get the program onto maybe more secure footing where we financial footing where we can hire more people and have more outlets. As I say, popular music has to move with the times, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and we are, we are Afro pop. So I, I sort of see myself as transitioning more into a kind of emeritus role of, of, uh, you know, developing the archive and keeping, making sure that the new stories are told in the context of the old stories. You know? So that's kind of, a summary of where it's at right now for me. In 2001, I think it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2001, you traveled to Zimbabwe to compile information for a report on music censorship, which yes. you presented to the to um, Free Muse, the Free Danish Muse. human rights organization. And uh, uh, Zimbabwe was under military rule uh, with uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Robert uh, Mugabe yeah. uh, until 2017. And uh, music censorship, as well as government corruption, was at epidemic proportions. Uh, Fortunately, it's not a whole lot better now, but. Yeah, well, never will be. <laughs> you know how things are. Uh, but that story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did you manage to com- compile the information for that report? Uh, did you? Did did what, did you face a lot of trouble from the from the government? Uh, well, I went I went pretty much under the radar. I had been to Zimbabwe uh, before, and I was simultaneously working on a book about Thomas Mapfumo. And since uh, some of his songs were among the ones that were being um, that were being 
censored, but they weren't. I mean, the whole the whole sort of gist of that report was that they don't issue a decree that says, you know, you can't play this song or this artist. It's communicated in more subtle ways. It's about creating a an atmosphere of fear and intimidation where where, where DJs will just think, I better stick away from that, you know, and mm, kind and of like the mafia. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's, they had more subtle techniques of, 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 uh, and that's kind of what I was, was teasing out in that report. How exactly does that work? But for me, I had a lot of background for all, from all my previous trips, you know, a few years before that I had lived in Zimbabwe and basically just been walking in the shoes of the blacks unlimited, which is a pretty nocturnal life. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, <laughs> you just, you know, shows end at three 30 in the morning across town and you're getting home at sunrise and sleeping till the afternoon. And, and, um, and so it was very interesting on that 2001 trip to go at a time when Thomas was in the U S and I was having a more normal daytime life where I could go talk to journalists in their office or politicians even, mm. um, I I did not experience any direct, um, you know, hostility or intimidation, mm, um, but I was really under the radar. So I don't think that, you know, the people who would have who would have not been happy with what I was doing um, didn't know about me. But and I have no idea what they thought of that report when it came out. Frankly, I doubt they were bothered by it at all because they're really not not. Um, too worried about what people on the outside say about them. They're used to being harassed and slandered. And I mean, Mugabe was, Mugabe was persona non grata in much of the world by that point. Um, Mm. But, but um, what was very interesting was because I had this association with Thomas Mafumo, who has this very complicated relationship with the politics of Zimbabwe, because you know, he made his name in the 70s when he was writing the songs that literally inspired young Zimbabweans to go join the guerrillas and fight for the liberation. So he was like a, you know, soundtrack to the revolution, you know, muse, hero of, of the liberation movement. And even though that got a little bit complicated at the end, he preserved that mantle and had many friends and, and, and admirers who rose in, in Mugabe's government. Mm. Um, and so when the time came, when he started re- late eighties, right around the time I first went to Zimbabwe, Thomas wrote the song Corruption, where he basically called these people out for, for, for squandering all this public money and, and, and not, not fulfilling their promises and so forth. And that became a, a, a growing theme in his music. So it was very, it created a lot of cognitive dissonance among some people in the government because they loved and admired this guy. And yet they were now angry at him for criticizing them. And, um, and I was able to talk to a few politicians who gave me some insight into that, you know, and, 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 and tried to sort of explain to me how, how, you know, I remember one in particular saying that, you know, we find it so sad that he thinks he should go into exile. He was being harassed, you know, <laughs> he really was. And he was worried about his family's safety. So he had moved them to the United States quietly. But by the time I was there, people knew that this had happened. And and and, it's, and these politicians are saying, oh, we need him now, you know. But then they're the same ones who are saying, you know, 
you know, because so much of the rhetoric was about the land. The land was stolen from them, which is true. And, and the agreements had been made with England in, in 1979 that there was going to be this redistribution process. It never really happened. Maggie Thatcher never really came through with her into the bargain. Nothing really changed. Mugabe didn't make it a priority. And then all of a sudden he was getting all this criticism and attack from war veterans. And so he went on the rampage and started basically condoning these, these, these uh, violent takeovers of white land and burning farms and, and stuff, which was really destructive. It put a lot of, of Zimbabweans out of work because they worked on these farms, you know, mm-hmm. and there was no plan to to take the land and deal with it. And Mapfuma was, was pointing this out saying, look, man, you guys don't have any plan. You know, you're just like lashing out with violence, you know? And, and, and that was, um, it, you know, and then these politicians would try to say, yes, maybe it's not being done in the best way, but surely he understands that this is what has to happen. And, they, you know, they tried to put a reasonable face on what was happening, which to me did not seem reasonable, but it was very interesting. I, I, it, the, it, I mean, I'm not usually like a political journalist, but it kind of put me in that position. And in the end, it added a great dimension to the book that I ended up writing about Mapfumo because um, I really got some insight into how he he was seen by these people who had grown up admiring him and then ended up on the other side of things. It's a very complicated story. It's, um, it always is. Yeah. Let's talk about Lion Songs Records. Uh, yeah. your, your new label was launched last year and um, it specializes in uh, uh, arcane African music, acoustic music and other kinds of uh, uh, things that are off the beaten path. Uh, how did that come about and uh, why did you start the project? Well, I always have had the idea of, I mean, Afropop has toyed with the idea of having a label. Mm-hmm. Um, and just always found it, you know, one thing too many. Um, and of course, it, as many people have pointed out, that this is the most ridiculous time to think about starting a label anyway, because nobody's buying music. But uh, but I guess what happened was when I when I published the book about Thomas Mapfumo, which is called Lion Songs, um, um, Thomas Mapfumo and the Music That Made Zimbabwe. I made a deal with Thomas where I said, well, let's put together a compilation that covers your whole career and we'll I'll intersperse it with little bits of interviews that, that, that are sort of cherry picked to kind of briefly tell your story intermixed with all these songs. And I, and I, I thought it would be just a really nice kind of audio experience of, 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 the, of the, the story. And so we put this together and I said, you know, we let's just put it out ourselves and I'll just advertise it on, 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 you know, in whatever ways I can. I did a paid for a small publicity campaign for it. And what ended up happening is that the book sold very slowly and slowly Mm -hmm. over the years. And the CD just took off. People were downloading it and buying it everywhere. And we were and Thomas and I were making, more proceeds from that than than from anything else and it gave me it gave me a different sense of confidence in the idea of selling downloaded music and so what happened was i'd been so 
In fact, the, the, the label actually launched earlier. I made the official launch last year because that was the time when I kind of committed to the idea of, okay, let's let's actually because when I put when I put the Lion Songs CD out, I I put Lion Songs on it, and then a group that I play with in New York, Tim Bula, we put out a CD, and I said, well, let's just call this release two of Lion Songs Records, but. You know, that was also a, a pretty small affair. We only had really a local audience, didn't sell a lot of those. But I've been sitting on this recording of, of this amazing Malian guitarist, Bubakar Bajan Jabate, mm -hmm. that I had made in the Afropop studio in New York. Um, and I really believed in that recording. I thought, this is this is just an extraordinary guitar recording. It's 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 a masterful. It's really simple and straightforward. It's just one or two guitar parts throughout. It's all pretty much all him. I played on one track. His cousin played on a few tracks. But basically, it's it's a real showcase of one of the most virtuoso guitar styles in Africa. Mm. And I felt that there's nothing else like this out here. So I'm gonna you know invest in this and use it as a way of announcing this label um because i think it's a really strong calling card and it's gotten a lot of reviews it's sold it hasn't really paid for itself but it's you know it's done okay and um and and that's sort of encouraged me to keep going so so we just released this year um a uh, recording by uh, this trio that i play with with uh, a chora player and um, from New who lives in New York, Molly and Cora player, Jakuba Sissoko, and this mm -hmm. wonderful uh, saxophone player from Austria who, who had been coming here once a year. She'd worked in Africa a lot. We put together this trio, which is really interesting. It's very acoustic, There's, you know, because we're playing rhythmic African music with no percussion. You mm -hmm. know, it's just the Cora and, and me on guitar, fingerstyle, making the whole rhythm section. And then being able to figure out ways of of, uh, of soloing and having the other two instruments um, keep it down, you know, and and we really developed a sound. And so we we made this recording just before uh, um, COVID struck. So that became the latest release. I have a lot of ideas about what should come next. I mean, my idea with that label is I I, I really I want to focus on the things that. I really have a passion for. So it's really coming from my tastes more than anything. I'm not so much looking for, you know, the next big thing. I'm looking for things that I feel like are really beautiful and are being overlooked. Hmm. And at some point I will start putting some of my own music out on the label. One of the things that I noticed about, uh, about uh, Africa that, I mean, obvious is that it's a, it's a multitude of cultures and nationalities. And of course, there's also the economic disparity and chaos that uh, was created in, you know, by, the, by colonialism, uh, which we're still feeling. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine, a Senegalese friend who uh, is involved in uh, Senegalese politics. And uh, mm. uh, he, he was telling me that, you know, African politics follows a crabs in a barrel model and uh yeah i'm sure you know all about that uh, uh, do you think that there's a possibility that this could be overcome and that a unified business model will emerge for musicians in africa and uh if so how do you think this could be uh done how could this happen well it's definitely going to require generational change i mean all all the hope that you can find for a better future for africa 
lies with the the the, the, the new generation. And you know, <laughs> as 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 uh, Thomas Mafuno says near the end of the the, the book uh, that I wrote about him, he, he's something about how our generation has failed. We just blew it. You know, we did not figure out how to govern countries. We 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 did not figure out how to create productive societies, and we did not figure out how to create a, a proper music infrastructure. So it's your turn, basically. You know. Yeah. But then the next thing is is the existence of these um, satellite television services that go across many countries, and it's especially functioning in the Anglo African world, where you know so nowadays you have kenyan artists that are being listened to in south africa and ghana and and uh, and nigeria and vice versa tanzania you have a much bigger market that can be reached by any of these artists and this is how you end up with burna boy at madison square garden you know um mm-hmm. you 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 they've these people have been much smarter they're not relying on record sales at all you know they were kind of insulated in against the whole mp3 revolution because because they basically had um had already had such a serious problem with piracy cassette and cd piracy that they already knew they couldn't make money off recordings so when when downloads and mp3s hit it wasn't that big a change for them they basically have created a whole new business model Mm. and that works great for the real pop musicians. I don't know what it's doing for, you know, the kind of artists that are, you know, playing the Quora in at ceremonies or anything like that. You know, there's there's a lot more to be done for the more sort of marginal styles, but at least now there is a model and there is there is an industry that's that's developing its own rules in Africa mm-hmm. and and uh, and the world is taking notice. China has been exercising what can only be described as an economic invasion of Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the ineptitude of the Trump administration has facilitated the uh, CCP and allowed this, you know, them to expand their influence. How do you see this affecting the lives and the business practices of musicians in Africa? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I, I, um, the musicians I've spoken with are definitely skeptical about about the Chinese presence. There have been songs about that. Really? Thomas had a song uh, on his last album, Fumo, that was basically saying it was about credit, and it was basically saying, you know, the Chinese are giving you all these things, but they're not giving you them for free. You know, oh, yeah, it's like a credit card. You know. <laughs> You're going to have to pay in the end is is the line. And and of, and of course, he's not specifically talking about the music industry. I honestly don't know what their interest is. I don't know that they're particularly involved in any of these big musical initiatives I was talking about. But it seems to me likely that they probably are on some level. I just don't have information about that. But one thing we've been thinking about for a long time is that with that number of of Chinese people living in Africa and prior to COVID, there were quite a lot of Africans living in, in particularly in Guangdong in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I read a New York article about how they were really being sat on and encouraged, if not forced to leave when mm. COVID hit. So that's all been interrupted by COVID. But but what I've been wondering about, you know, I mean, if you think about the legacy of Chinese producers in Jamaica, 
um, and reggae, you know, the role of the Chinese um, um, in, 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 in that, in the evolution of that music, I'm wondering if there's going to be some kind of creative collaborations that are going to happen where you're going to have um, African music that has some kind of Chinese input and vice versa. You know, I haven't seen any evidence of it yet, but it seems like that would be interesting. The, it would be interesting. And, and, and I, given the <laughs> I know, I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of Chinese pop music and, uh, and music could use that, some, yeah, could use some African input. <laughs> oh my God! It's I, I hate to say it, but it's you know to my to my taste, it's unfit for human ears, especially the stuff that's approved by the Communist Party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I don't know how yeah. anyone can listen to that, but uh, yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, something has got to come from this. I mean, that's what I feel like. Something has to happen with just that amount of exposure, but. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and now of course Russians are coming in too, more on the military side than the uh, than the, the economic. But but um, yeah, our inattention to to that has not been good, um, uh, and um, I don't know what the fallout will be. But I think there's, I get the sense that there's there's a fair amount of popular resentment for for of the Chinese input. Um, mm. You know, the, the, the politicians say, well, they're helping us, anyone who's helping us, you know, but are they really, you know, I mean, yeah, they're not helping there's, us. there's cases of um, terrible abuse of workers in mines in the Congo and Zambia and things, things, things have risen to the level of very highly publicized court cases. And, you know, it's hard to say how this is all going to wash out, but, you know, money, money has power. And, and, mm-hmm. and obviously the, the big, goal for the Chinese is to is to get control of as many resources as possible. Yeah, I mean, anybody can see that. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, some of the governments, some of the politicians are seeing it in a very uh, short sighted way. Yeah, well, that seems to be a human problem, uh, which mm. we are suffering from too: short sightedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't see the long picture, but uh, that is one advantage that China seems to have is that uh, uh, they're an old civilization and they they tend to see things in terms of centuries yes, rather than right. quarters, like, you know. Yeah, that combined with their freedom from moral qualms is a pretty powerful <laughs> combination. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You've been involved with MFM for a while now, and uh, you're a member of our advisory committee. How would you suggest that MFM goes go about reaching out to African musicians in in the U.S. and uh, possibly in uh, in Africa? And uh, do you think that African musicians might join MFM and export our uh, mission to their respective countries? It would be nice, wouldn't it? I, I guess what drew me originally to the uh, to the organization was just the idea of getting a, a more fair shake for musicians and and. Uh, you know, pulling together that way. And, you know, I, I was experiencing a particular, at the time when I joined, I was spending a lot more time in New York because we still, we still had our office there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was, you know, seeing firsthand how, how difficult it is to make any money in New York playing music. Oh, and especially if you're, if you're, about it. I mean, even if you're playing music, that's, that's, that's got a real audience, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
it can be very, very difficult and for a whole variety of reasons. So, so I guess I just thought that I was thinking of very much in sort of New York centric terms, you know, getting, getting a, a, a fairer shake for, uh, for, for musicians. Um, and it's tricky. I, 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 I believe in the mission. I don't really know how many ideas I have about how to do that when it comes to specifically African musicians, the few that I have spoken to about joining the organization, they hesitate on a sort of instinctual level to the idea of joining anything, you know, they, mm. they kind of, they kind of feel like, like they are fighting their own battles and have their own, you know, systems of, I mean, the African musicians who make money in New York don't do it in, in, in commercial venues. They do it, um, they do it through community events in hired halls in Harlem and the Bronx and that, and, mm-hmm. and where, where they're really not dealing with, with any infrastructure other than, than community African infrastructure. Because a lot of, particularly I'm thinking of the more traditional musicians, like the core player that we work with. He's, uh, he's an example of someone who's, who's integrated himself enough into the music scene that he gets gigs with, you know, people like, um, you know, um, I mean, he's played with Yo-Yo Ma. He played on a Paul Simon album. He's uh, he's toured with um, Roberto Fonseca and mm-hmm. uh, and um, the 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 violin player's name slipping my name right now. My mind right now will come to me. Oh, Regina Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's found ways to uh, to make money and is, and is actually getting enough work now that he's just had to hire a manager. So I don't think he, he, he's an example of someone who I don't think particularly feels that they need to advocate generally. So that's the problem is to try to get a sense of collective um, mission, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there's, um, there's, you know, I, I'm thinking of the, the history of African musician unions that I've seen in various African countries. And they've generally been corrupt, failed enterprises that mm. really didn't accomplish much of anything for musicians. And, and, you know, I remember going to a meeting of one in Zimbabwe and it was just a lot of arguing, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so maybe there's, maybe there's an inherent skepticism that, such organization could actually help. So that's a, that's a hard thing to, uh, to break through, but it's worth trying because mm. obviously, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, these, um, these mega trends are really helping the, the high level of artists, but people below that on the food chain, I don't know that, that this is really doing much for them. And they really do need the kind of initiatives that MFM is about. Mm. So it's an ongoing challenge. I don't, I don't know that I have any magic answers to it, but I think, I think that um, probably what would help would be to have some success stories, you know, to be able to, to show how we have been able to help certain, you know, if just getting a few African musicians in there who actually have good experiences of, of gaining from being in the organization would start the ball rolling perhaps, but um, it's a challenge. It's definitely a big challenge. Yeah. I've seen the same thing. Uh, you know, people are you know, going to look at sometimes you know, people that do music that's outside of the mainstream 
they have to create their own their own infrastructure rather than you know joining something uh, that uh, that already exists and maybe maybe that does create some sort of uh, instinctual distrust yeah, and you can't blame you can't blame anybody for that so no. uh it's a kind you know, of maybe a yeah. mentality, you know, that, that yeah, it's yeah. do it yourself, do it yourself, yeah, do it yourself. So yeah. The, but of course mantra. that's, that's, a, that's exactly what, uh, what, what MFM itself grew out of. So <laughs> exactly. I guess, you know, we all have to some, somehow or other convince each other, Hey, you know, we're, we're all trying to do the same thing here. One of the things that's really useful about MFM is, is the resources, you know, learning mm-hmm. about how to, how to negotiate, how to, how to, to handle copyright better. I mean, I myself have a lot to learn in that department. And that's one thing that I value about MFM is having that kind of expertise um, at hand, you know, to guide through the, the some of the more complicated aspects of how you make money as a musician, aside from just like getting a good deal at a, at a club gig, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the resources are there, you know, it's just a matter of networking and uh, communicating and building trust, I guess. Yep. And that takes time. That takes time. That takes, you know, showing people, showing people that, uh, you know, Hey, this is, this is, yeah, this is, this is in my best interest, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, that should do it. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, joining us and thank you for a fascinating interview. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Our guest today has been banning air. The topics discussed today included Banning's profound knowledge of African music, drawing upon his influences when composing and improvising, his experiences performing with African musicians like Thomas Mapfumo and others, how he was received by African musicians and audiences, the challenges in adapting to different styles, the essence of African music, Afropop worldwide, the future of African music, Banning's travels to Zimbabwe and his report on music censorship by the Mugabe regime to the Danish human rights organization Free Muse, Lion Songs Records, the politics of the music business in Africa, China's involvement in African economy and its influence on the music business, Banning's involvement with MFM, and how MFM could be a presence in the African music scene. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this one, please hit the subscribe button. We thank you for your support. We did very well the last few years. We found new audiences, and we have been working hard to bring incredible stories and content. And we plan to do more of this in the years ahead. We have always been consistent. And we believe that an important step toward the success of the music community is in building an independent media. If you would like to help us on that journey, please go to musiciansformusicians.org. You can become a supporter or a member and help our work reach even more people. My name is Dawood Kringle, and you have been listening to MFM Speaks Out. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to leave you with one final track. This is a piece by Thomas Mapfumo called Shumba.
Never, 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 never